0: i give you a little report from the Baptist Convention. As you know, one of our key emphases is reaching the next generation. About two weeks ago at Roger Williams University in Rhode Island, we had 500 teenagers and their chaperones who gathered for a week of camp. It was a very exciting week. Several young people came to know the Lord. Several talked about perhaps becoming ministers, missionaries, various types of ministry, vocations, and then, of course, dozens and dozens made other types of decisions for christ as always happens at youth camp so thanks for praying thanks for serving and thanks for giving to the cooperative program because your prayers your serving and your giving make all of that possible so god is doing some great things through this wonderful network that you're a part of the baptist convention of new england so thank god for that (laughs) well i have already apologized in advance to our interpreter because I tend to speak fast, Um, so I'm going to try to go into my slow, fast mode, which is still pretty fast, but I'll try. I want to start with a poem. I was taught in seminary that you should have three powerful points, and then you end with a moving poem. What if you start with a poem and just turn it all backwards? Let's try that. Are you ready? Here's a poem. Feeling footloose and frisky, a feather-brained fellow forced his father to fork over his farthings. Fast, he flew to foreign fields and frittered his family's fortune, feasting fabulously with flat-footed floozies and faithless friends. How do you translate floozies? I didn't I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Fleeced by his fellows in folly, facing famine and feeling faintly fuzzy, he found himself a feed-flinger in a filthy foreign farmyard, feeling frail and fairly famished he fain would have filled his frame with foraged food from the fodder fragments. Phooey, he figured, my father's flunky spare, far fancier, the fazled fugitive fumed feverishly, facing the facts. Finally, frustrated from failure and filled with foreboding, he fled from the filthy foreign farmyard. Far away, the father focused on the fretful familiar form in the fields and flew to him and fondly flung his forearms around the fatigued fugitive. Falling at his father's feet, the fugitive floundered forlornly, Father, I have flunked and fruitlessly forfeited family favor. The faithful father, forbidding and forestalling, further flinching, frantically flagged the flunkies to fetch forth the finest fatling and fix a feast. Meanwhile... The father's firstborn was in a fertile field fixing fences while father and fugitive were feeling festive. The foreman felt fantastic as he flashed the fortunate news of a familiar family face. The frugal firstborn felt it was fitting to feel favored for his faithfulness and fidelity to family, father, and farm. Frowning and finding fault, the firstborn fumed to the father, little brother frittered family funds on floozies and foam, and you fix a feast for the fugitive? Frankly, the father felt the frigid's firstborn frugality of forgiveness was formidable and frightful. The far-sighted father figured such fidelity is fine, but what forbids fervent festivity for the fugitive that is found? Unfurl the flags and finery, let fun and frolic freely flow, former failure is forgotten. Folly is forsaken, and forgiveness forms the foundation for future fortune. The prodigal son in the key of F, author unknown. That's a lot. (laughs) You probably recognize that story. Perhaps not that version of the story, but you probably recognize that story as the story of the prodigal son. The more familiar version that we all learned in Sunday school is found in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, uh, we're introduced to the story where it says in verse 11 and 12 that a man had two sons. And the younger of them said to him, Father, give me my share of the estate that I have coming to me. And so he distributed his assets to them. So the parable of the prodigal son, it is one of Jesus' most famous parables. Uh, If you had been alive, you know, 2,000 years ago, and I know this is a historic church, but there's no one that's quite that historic here, right? If you had been alive 2,000 years ago and you had been at the synagogue during the summer, in the summer little synagogue box, you would have probably gotten the story of the prodigal son and you would have colored some pictures and you would have answered some quizzes and you would have won a contest, right? That's right, that's what you would have done because you would have learned the story of the prodigal son, one of the most famous parables of Jesus. In the story, the younger son demands what he thinks and feels that he deserves from the father. He wants his inheritance and he wants it now, he wants it immediately instead of waiting for the father to pass away to receive it. Now, I don't know how inheritances work in your family, but usually someone has to pass away before you get the inheritance. Uh, you might have heard the story about the little boy who went to his grandfather and he said, uh, Grandpa, he said, make a sound like a frog. And the grandfather kind of scratched his head a little bit and said, what? And the little boy said, make a sound like a frog. And the grandfather said, well, why do you want me to make a sound like a frog? And the little boy said, because Mama says when you croak, we get to go to Disney World. <laughs> Some of you will get that in a minute, okay? You'll get it, you'll get it, all right? you know, <clears throat> Obviously, usually to get an inheritance, someone has to pass away. So imagine going to your parent and saying, give me my money now. What you're basically saying is, I wish you were dead because I'd rather have your money. Could you imagine saying that to your parent I don't care if you lived 2,000 years ago, whether you live today, that's just not something we should ever say to anyone. What an awful, terrible, disrespectful way it would be to relate to a parent, to say, I wish you were dead so I could have my share of the loot and go do whatever I want to do. But this request from the young son was actually more than just disrespectful. It actually was also against the law in that particular culture. You see, Jewish custom was that the older son would inherit everything, so what the younger son actually deserved was nothing. Now, I know we struggle with that a little bit in our culture, because in our culture, we probably would split our inheritance up equally amongst everyone. Okay, But remember, this was a different culture. And the reason they had it this way in the culture in which this scripture was written is because almost everyone lived on a farm. And if you split your 100-acre farm up, uh, say 10 acres each, to each of your 10 children, how do you make a living on a 10-acre farm? And then each of ki- them split their farm up into 10 acres, which would be like one-acre farms to 10 kids. It doesn't take but about two generations and no one can make a living. So therefore, they had created a system in which the older son inherited everything, and then he would use the wealth of the farm to take care of the family. Now again, we don't, that's different the way we do it in our culture. But that's the way they did it in their culture in order to make the economics work in an agricultural environment. So what the young son, when he's going to the dad and saying, give me what I deserve, what he actually deserved was nothing. And yet he's saying, dad, I wish you were dead so I could get something that I don't deserve. I want mine, and I don't care about you, and I don't care about the family. In Jewish custom and Jewish law, even if the father did want to give the younger son something, let's say he just loved his young son so much, he said, "Look, I'm going to give you like a little token. I can't give you, can't split the farm up evenly, but I'm going to give you a little little piece of land up on a hill, let you build a little little cabin or something." The law said it couldn't be more than a third of the inheritance because someone had to be able to make enough money to keep the whole family afloat. The, the whole family had to live on the inheritance, and so so it was really incredibly crazy for the young son to demand something. That he didn't deserve. You know, if you think about this from a spiritual perspective. Do you ever wonder if we treat God this way? You know, sometimes I think those of us who have been a Christian for a long time. I think sometimes we go to God. and We may not use the words. But our, our heart attitude is, God I have served you for a long time. So I deserve to have my prayers answered. God, I've been teaching Sunday school for 25 years, so I deserve that promotion at work. God, I've been in this church forever, you know, whatever, since two years before the country was founded. I deserve something because of my faithfulness and because of my hard work. I deserve X, Y and Z. And we can get sometimes demanding from God as if God somehow owes us a favor. Of course, when you actually say the words, we go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't make sense. When we say the words, we absolutely realize it makes no sense. But sometimes when we don't say the words, we can fool ourselves in the back of our minds into thinking that we deserve something that we don't. Do you realize that the only thing that we actually deserve is to pay the penalty of our sins in hell forever? Now, I know that's not a sentence we hear at church much anymore, because now we try to make everything soft and warm and, and cuddly and, and fuzzy and, and all of that. But what we deserve, what we actually deserve, is to pay the penalty of our sin. And anything that we get from God beyond that is a gift of grace. Because the Father loves us. Fortunately, isn't it wonderful that we serve a God who is filled with grace? Aren't you glad that God is filled with grace? Aren't you glad that God does not give us what we deserve, but it gives us something wonderful in place of it? For us to demand anything from God is to be completely disrespectful to God, just like the young son in the story. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't humbly ask something from God. Uh, My grandchildren were at my house. I know it's a shock that I have grandchildren. But yes, I have three grandchildren. They were at my house this weekend. uh, And you know, my little grandchildren, they love to ask me for things. And what do you think happens when they ask me for things? Of course they get it. I'm the grandpa. That's my job, right? (laughs) They ask, and I'm happy to give it to them. Aren't you glad God is like that? When we ask God for things, He does oftentimes give us the things that we ask for. But we must never demand something from God because we do not deserve it. Well, as we look at this particular story, the boy basically goes to his dad, says, "Dad, I want what I don't deserve, and I wish you were dead so I could get it." And for whatever reason, the father decides to give it to the son, despite the un- incredible disrespect and in spite of violating all the customs and rules and traditions. He decides to give it to the son anyway. Now, now clearly the son is not mature enough to handle this gift clearly the son is not going to do uh, use it wisely it's going to all be wasted it's all going to be with flat-footed floozies and all those f's that we just uh, uh, said a moment ago we, we, we understand that we know that okay but the father gives it to him anyway why would the father do that well perhaps the father knew that the son would not learn any other way you know some people have the incredible ability to listen to like the still, small voice of God, like the whisper of the Holy Spirit in their ear, and they can hear it, and they can like obey immediately. Oh, what a blessing it must be to be that kind of person. Then there's the rest of us. We need a spiritual two-by-four <laughs> upside the head, and even then, we still need it sometimes more than once before we finally get the message from God. That's just the way some of us are. I I envy those of you who can hear the still small voice and immediately obey. Praise God for you, okay? The rest of us, uh, it doesn't come so easily. Sometimes God has to give us what we ask for, knowing that it's not actually what we need, so that we can see that our hope is in Him alone and not in all that stuff that we've asked for. And probably if we went around the room this morning, we could probably hear some testimonies today of people who say, I pursued this and I begged God for it and he gave it to me and I realized it wasn't fulfilling at all. And so then I had to become content with whatever God actually wanted me to have, which is what we should have pursued to begin with, but we didn't know it. Sometimes we have to do it wrong before we do it right. That's exactly what was taking place in this story. Well, look at verse 13. It says, not many days later, The younger son gathered together all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Once the young son got what he wanted, it didn't take him very long to get in trouble. You know, capital T, that was his name, all right, trouble, all right. Uh, The younger son got what he wanted, and he took off. He went to a distant country. Now why did he go to a distant country? Because he didn't want his father to see what he was about to do. You see, he knew that he was going to make some bad decisions. The son had it all planned out. I'm going to get my money, and I'm going to go somewhere, and I'm going to do some stuff. And I don't want dad to see what I'm going to do because I know he would not approve of it. And so I'm going to go far away where no one can see me, and I can do whatever I want to do. The young son, he wanted to do what he wanted, when he wanted, however he wanted. And he mistakenly thought that he would suffer no consequences from his bad decisions you know i think we're like that sometimes in our lives maybe we're going through some struggles and we start making some bad choices you know you know if life was always wonderful and under the best of circumstances we'd probably always make good choices right but it's usually it's under a moment of stress that we do something that we shouldn't do, right? We make a bad choice, we get stressed out about something, and we say something or do something, and we start making bad choices. And then one bad choice leads to another and another and another, and we find ourselves suddenly in a mess. And sometimes when we get there, we think, well, if I don't pray, if I don't read the Bible, if I don't go to church, maybe God won't notice the mess that I'm making of my life. But of course, (laughs) it doesn't work that way, does it? We might think that we're hiding in a distant place from God and that our Father has not seen what we're doing to squander all the gifts that He's given us. But God knows all of our problems. God knows all of our struggles. He knows the problems that other people have brought into our lives, and He knows the problems that we've brought into our own lives by our bad choices. We God knows all of our issues and all of our goods and our bads. He knows all of it, whether we're on speaking terms with Him or not. Whether we're coming to his house regularly or not, God knows it all. We cannot get so distant from God that he does not know who we are. Now, we might get so distant from God that we forget who he is, but he will never forget who we are. Well, look at verse 14. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Once the younger son had spent everything that his father had given him, then disaster struck. Isn't it interesting how disaster works like that? You know, Now, there's never a good time for disaster. I mean, have you ever had like a a time in your life when you lost a job and said, Woo-hoo, this is like the best time ever to lose my job. I got plenty of money in the bank and everything's great. No, that's just not the way it works, right? You ever had like a a friendship end and you say, Woo-hoo, this is like the best time ever. I got so many friends, I didn't need that one anyway. I mean, that's just not the way it works, right? It seems like disaster always comes at the worst moment. Like the worst time ever when like, oh, this is, not, I do not need one more thing on my plate. That's when disaster comes. That's actually what makes it so disastrous. You see, if we weren't already in a tight place, maybe we wouldn't even think of it as a disaster. We would just think of it as a, maybe one more little struggle. But what makes it so disastrous is that it comes at the worst time. Have you ever thought that perhaps that's God's way of getting our attention? You see, God is always speaking to us. God is always doing that whispering with the still small voice of the Spirit in our ear. He always is. But oftentimes we're not listening. We're so busy doing our thing and living our life and just kind of living without Him that we don't listen. And then disaster comes and suddenly we start praying. (laughs) Suddenly we start thinking, maybe I need something different in my life. Disaster can actually be a blessing because it forces us to think about things that we should have been thinking about all along, but we just took for granted. The good news is that God is still there in the midst of our worst disasters, whether it's a disaster caused by someone else's bad behavior, whether it's a disaster caused by our own poor choices. Either way, God is still there in the midst. Of our disaster. You say, Terry, how do you know God is there in the midst of our disaster? Well, look at verse 15. I love this. It says, Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now, this is an interesting verse because in this verse we find this young man having to do something he's never done before. The boy who had lived a privileged life of comfort and ease suddenly had to get a, I'm not sure I can say this word, it's a bad word. I'm not sure I can say it in church. Uh, uh, a uh, job <laughs> yeah and since there were no openings for rich playboys on craigslist <laughs> he had to get a dirty job feeding pigs Now i don't know if anyone in the room's ever fed pigs okay it's not a fun job regardless all right pigs don't they don't like get in a row and line up nice and neat and eat like neat oh my turn okay okay you, you had your two ounces now step aside because the next one no that's not the way it works Imagine 10 teenage boys at a pizza buffet and there's only three pieces of pizza left. Now you've got the picture in your head, okay? All right, listen, it it, it it was a difficult job to feed pigs. But for this young man, it was even more difficult because this young man was Jewish. And in the Jewish religion, they considered pigs to be unclean. Now, I thank God that I'm not Jewish because I had some bacon this morning. All right, I love bacon, okay? I even have a pair of socks that when I put them on, it says, bring me bacon. All right, hold up my feet, say, bring me bacon, okay? I've got pictures to prove it, okay? Uh, I love bacon, so I'm glad I'm not Jewish, okay? But for those people who are Jewish, you know, part of their religion was that pigs were unclean. It's hard for us as Christians to grasp what that means because we don't think of pigs as being unclean. We might think of them as being like physically dirty, but we don't think of them as being spiritually dirty. So we, 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 we struggle to understand why that would be a struggle for this young man. Here's the best example that I could give for those of us who have grown up in a Christian environment, not a Jewish environment. Imagine if you lost your job and the only job that you could get to take care of your family was down at the local bar, perhaps a topless bar, they hired you to be the person who would come in at 2 a.m. and clean everything up. And so you have to go into a place like that, that in your mind you would be thinking is unclean and dirty, and you have to clean up all the stuff. There's vomit in this corner, and there's all kinds of liquor bottles here, and in the bathroom there's other items that you wish you didn't have to touch, but you had to clean it all up. Not only would it be physically gross, but as a Christian you would feel like dirty every time you went to work. But what if it was the only job you could get? And you were hungry and your kids were hungry and you're about to become homeless and it was the only job you could get. You would just have to take it and you would hate it, but you would have to do it in order to take care of your family. If you could picture how you would feel with that kind of job, that's how this young man felt as he was feeding pigs. Not only was it difficult to do, but it made him feel dirty on the inside. And you might say, Terry, how in the world is any of that proof that God was watching out for him? Think about the context of his situation. They're in the middle of an economic depression. There are no jobs for anyone anywhere. Why in the world would a farmer hire a rich, lazy kid who's never worked a day in his life to work on the farm? Why would he hire a Jewish kid who's afraid of pigs and doesn't want to be near them? This is the least likely job for this young man to ever get anywhere. And the very fact that God got him this job at all is proof that God was taking care of him. The boy might have hated his job, but the fact that he had one in such difficult economic times was a demonstration that God was watching over him in a time of disaster. I think sometimes when we go through disasters in our life, whether we've created them ourselves by our bad choices, or whether they just happened because, I don't know, whatever, someone else made some bad choices, whatever the reason, I think sometimes when we go through bad experiences, we go through disasters, we oftentimes think that God has abandoned us. We think that God is not listening to our prayers and God doesn't care. We think that God has forgotten us. But in reality, God is actually helping us even in those challenging times. God is doing things behind the scenes like he was doing in this boy's life. This boy probably did not wake up in the morning and th- say, thank God for my job feeding pigs. He probably woke up in the morning and thank God, you're so mean to me for making me do this. He didn't realize that this was actually God's way of taking care of him during this difficult moment. Well, look at verse 16. It's interesting as the story continues. It says, He longed to eat his fill from the carrot pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. This young man had so little food, even with a job, even making money, even with a a, a hard-working kind of good, solid job. He got paid so little and food cost so much that he was still hungry. Let me tell you something. I'm not sure how hungry you have to be to think that pig slop looks good, but this boy was pretty hungry, okay, to think that pig slop started looking good. The scriptures tell us that in this pig slop was something called carob pods. We've got a picture there on the screen that you can see. Uh, only animals and poor people ate carob pods. Now, carob pods, if they're ripe and if they're prepared properly, carob pods do have nutritional value. But there has never been a recipe made that makes them taste good. So you can survive eating carol pods, but you will not enjoy it. And he's looking at that thinking, hmm, my stomach is hungry. That's starting to look pretty good. It must have been very traumatic for the young man to watch the pigs get fatter while he was getting skinnier and hungrier all the time. And when he did get a chance to eat, when he did slip his hand in and grab something out of the pig pot, He didn't enjoy it very much. Wow, what an incredible example of how it is for those of us who are Christians when we choose to live outside of the blessings and the obedience of Christ. You see, we experience exactly what this young man was experiencing when we fall into the pigpen of sin. Oh, can we survive? Listen, here's the beauty of being a Christian. The beauty of being a Christian, we Baptists have this wonderful doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And what it means is that every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ holds you and you will never lose your salvation. You will go all the way to the end as a child of God. But I know some children of God that are living in absolute misery. They will survive, but they won't enjoy any of it because they're living in the pig pen of sin. Imagine if we could get out of the pig pen and get back into the palace that God would hope that we would have spiritually in our life. Perhaps it's time this morning for someone in this room who was already a Christian, who was already walking with Jesus, but is right now wallowing in the mud. Perhaps it's time to get out of the pig pen and get back to the life that God wants us to live. Why be spiritually hungry all the time when a feast is ready for the children of God at any moment. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. The young man finally came to his senses. I love that phrase. Came to his senses. Now, we don't know how long he was in the pig pen. We don't know if it was a week. We don't know if it was a month. We don't know if it was a year. Maybe it was five years. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us how long. But for some period of time, he lived in this pig pen, feeding pigs, something that was physically dirty and spiritually dirty, something that did never satisfy his needs. He could survive, but he never could thrive. And for some period of time, he lived in that condition. It made no sense. He was the son of a rich man. He was the son of someone who, in a distant place, he could go back at any moment to that other life and he could enjoy the richness of his father. This was senseless for him to be living like this. And yet, for some period of time, he did it. Living in sin is senseless. You see, sin will take us farther than we wanted to go, it will keep us longer than we wanted to stay, and it will cost us far, far, far more than we ever intended to pay listen brothers and sisters sin is never worth it in the end well this young man finally saw the reality of his situation and he realized that he could not go on living like that and he realized he didn't need to go on living like that isn't that what happens to us sometimes in our lives See, oftentimes our sin masks the truth from us for some period of time. For some period of time, we convince ourselves that this, this system or this, this, these choices or these whatever it is that we're doing, we know it's wrong, and yet we convince ourselves somehow that it's okay for some period of time. And we suffer significantly in our lives because of the lies we tell ourselves. We convince ourselves that something that we know is not true, we convince ourselves that it is true, and we live in this senseless situation. But we finally come to our senses because we are children of the King, because the Holy Spirit resides within us, because God loves us and that still small spirit keeps whispering in our ear, and because a couple 2 by fours sometimes hit us in the head from the Holy Spirit, because of that, we finally come to our senses and we see the reality of our situation. Oh, it's a humbling moment, but it's also a precious moment when we realize, I don't have to live like this anymore. I love verse 18. The young man says, I'll get up, I'll go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned in your sight. Listen, to get back to a right relationship with God, this is important. We must admit that our actions are sinful. Now, we don't like to do that in our culture today. In our culture today, we don't want anything to be called sin. We want everything to be okay, and everything to be accepted, and everything to be just fine. you ever watched the Dr. Phil show? People get on the Dr. Phil show and they say all kind of crazy things. Well, I've had 12 affairs and ran $75,000 up on credit cards and I don't know why my wife wants to leave me. (laughs) And what does Dr. Phil say? He says, well, how's that working for you? (laughs) Of course, it's not working very well at all. You know, we live in a culture that tells us that everything is fine. And I would say we don't need Dr. Phil. What we need is the Holy Spirit who says, how's that working for you? (laughs) I think we all know everything's not fine. It's not fine in our culture. It's not fine in our community. It's not fine in our own lives. We have the law of God written on our hearts and we know when we're doing things that we shouldn't do. And if we want to get back into a right relationship with God, instead of trying to blame it, uh, uh, explain it away and kind of justify it, we must admit that our actions are sinful. Our actions are not just a mistake. They're not just a minor blunder. They're grievous sins before the God of the universe. And our actions are also sin against the people in our lives that our choices have hurt. See, none of us are an island unto ourselves. We all have other people, family, friends, neighbors, community people, and our actions also impact them. And when we make bad choices, they're also impacted. So we've not only sinned against God, but we've sinned against people. And we must openly and completely admit this if we ever want healing in our lives. If we just keep trying to explain it away and say, hey, I'm okay, I'm good, we will never get back to where we need to be we will continue to live in the lies that we've told ourselves look at the next part of verse 20 first he says i'll get up and go to my father he says i I can you know my father's house has so much more so he says he got up and he went to his father the son did more than just admit that he had a problem he took action admitting that we have a problem is the first step and that's an important first step okay because we can't get anywhere without that first step but then we have to do we can't just walk around and say well i got a problem That's just who I am. You just have to accept me the way I am. Hey, I got a problem. Ah, You know, yeah, that's like the first step. And, and, And I love you the way you are, but I love you too much to leave you the way you are. Don't we want to help each other get better? Don't we want God to help us get better? This son had to take action. He had to get up out of the pig pen. He had to throw the pig pail away, and he had to climb over the fence, and he had to get on that road and head back toward the house. He had to travel back to his father, and he was willing to become a servant, which was all he deserved to be. Very different attitude when he left. When he left the house, he said, Dad, give me what I don't deserve, and I wish you were dead. Coming back, he's saying, Dad, I'm a mess, and I've made a mess. Just let me be one of the servants that lives out back, and I'll be fine. You know, what a different attitude. Oh, but what a powerful thought for us. You see, I believe that we must take action to prove our understanding of the truth in our lives. It's one thing to go to church and say, oh God, i got a problem, I'm so sorry. It's a different thing on Monday morning to say, okay, so I admitted my problem. Now how am I going to live today differently so that I just don't keep staying in the pig pen forever? What choices am I going to make Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday to make whatever I heard at church on Sunday that make it real in my life? The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 22, that we must be doers of the word, not hearers only. If we want to change our lives, we must do more than just admit our faults. We must act upon our faults. You know why we're afraid to act? Why we're afraid to sort of start trying to get right with God? I think we have this inner fear that God will somehow reject us. That God will find out all that we've done. And God will say, well, there was grace enough for everyone else, but not for you, because you're so bad that you can't ever come back in. Well, how did it work out for this boy? I love the second half of verse 20. It says, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Wow, look at that. Before the son could even make it all the way back to the house, the father had already seen him and was happy he was coming home. Listen, I think sometimes we think, well, I've been out of church for five years. I've been out of church for ten years. I've been this. I've been that. If I go back now, what will people think? I'll tell you what they'll think. They'll think, praise God, he's back. Praise God, she's back. You say, well, those people in that church, they're judgmental. Oh, there's probably some church somewhere like that. But you know what I find? I preach in a different church every week, and there aren't very many churches like that left because those all closed down a long time ago. What we have left are churches that are thinking if people will just show up, we'll just take them the way they are. Now, we're not going to leave them the way they are. We're going to let the, the word of God change their life. But you'll find most churches these days, you get a hug, you get a hug. No, when, when you walk in, nobody says, now <clears throat> what have you done for the last 48 hours? And if it's not on this list, you can't come in. That's not the way it works. <laughs> you get a hug and you get love and you get acceptance. It doesn't mean they loved everything you did. All the choices you made doesn't mean they'll love all the choices you make tomorrow. But they'll love you. That's what almost every church is like these days or else they closed down 20 years ago because cultural Christianity is rapidly dying in America. All we have left is the real stuff and the real stuff loves. So stop being afraid to come back to God and embrace Him because you will find His children who have also spent time in the big bin will be far more understanding than what you realize. If we take one step Toward God. God will take a dozen steps toward us. I love James chapter 4 verse 8. Draw near to God. And He will draw near to you. All we have to take is one step. And then God will do the rest. Well, let me bring all this to a conclusion. Four things I've said this morning. You've already heard the poem. So I don't have to tell you the poem. You already heard that. But here's four things I said this morning. First of all, we often demand things from God. That's not very healthy, okay? All we deserve is hell, and anything more is a gift. Fortunately, he's willing to give us that gift. To any person who confesses their sin and claims Jesus Christ as Savior, we can receive the forgiveness of God, and we can receive the grace of God, and we can become a child of God. And what a beautiful thing that is. Why demand something from God when you can just ask, and he'll give it to you? Number two. When we run from God, notice I didn't say if, I say when, because we all do it. I do it. We all do it. When we run from God, it will always end in disaster, every time. But the good news is, God will still be there. I just love the fact that God sees all of my faults and my weaknesses and my mistakes and my messes, and He loves me in spite of it. I don't have to hide it from Him. I can just say, God, here it is, warts and all. And he says, wow, that's rough, but I love you anyway. What an incredible, wonderful God we serve. Number three, when we finally come to our senses, we must repent. Repent means first admitting a problem, but then turning around and taking action That's do something different. We must take action that demonstrates repentance. When we finally come to our senses. Maybe there's someone here today who has come to your senses. You're already a Christian and you're trying to walk with God, but you've got some stuff. Today, why not come to your senses? Why live in the pig pen? Whatever it is that God's talking to you about, why not just come to him and say, God, help me do this right. And you say, well, Terry, that sounds good. I'm just not sure I have the, the willpower. That's why point number four is so important. If we take one step toward God, he will bring us the rest of the way home. You see, our faith does not rest on our willpower and our self-determination. It rests upon the power of a sovereign and mighty Lord. Do you have the ability to live the Christian life? Here's the bad news. (laughs) No. Does He have the ability to live the Christian life through you? Absolutely. If we could do it on our own, we wouldn't need church. We could just all go live in a cabin somewhere in the woods and just be on our own. But we need each other because one day I'm having a good day and you're having a bad day and one day you're having a great day and I'm having a bad day and God uses us to help each other. Let's take one step toward God and watch Him do the rest. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? There in your seat, perhaps the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Perhaps there's something that he's talking to you about. We all have different lives. We all have different journeys. We all have different paths that we've taken. But perhaps there's something that if you were to look at, you would say, yeah, that's my pig pen. That thing right there, that's my pig pen. That's where I've got a mess. But as a child of God, I know better. Would you just there in your seat say, oh, God, help me. Help me first to admit that it's wrong and then help me to take action to do right. And Lord, help me not to hide from you. I don't need to run off to a distant country. God sees it and God loves me anyway. But he loves me too much to leave me like that. As you let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart, would you respond there in your seat? He's speaking to you right now. And don't wait for the two by four. Listen to the whisper of His Spirit in your ear. Come to your senses. Come back to Him. Father, I pray right now in this moment that your Holy Spirit would be our Counselor that your Holy Spirit would walk among us, would walk up and down these aisles and speak to our hearts. May we hear what you're saying in this moment. May we get out of the pig pen and run back to you. And Lord, in those moments when we trip and we fall and we're not quite getting to you as quickly as we want, help us to remember that if we just keep taking one step, you'll do the rest. And Lord, I pray that in the end, we'll all have the joy of hearing you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We pray this in your holy and precious name.